0: On July 9th, South Sudan, the world's newest country, commemorates its fifth Independence Day. And I say commemorates and not celebrates, because there's not a whole lot to celebrate. The country has been mired in conflict since late 2013, when a political dispute between President Salva Kiir and his deputy Riek Machar "...devolved into an armed battle and then full-blown civil war. The consequences of this war for the people of South Sudan have been immense. Millions have been displaced, and though a peace deal was signed last year, violence continues to flare up. The humanitarian situation in South Sudan right now is among the worst in the world." On the line to discuss recent developments in South Sudan, the role of the United Nations peacekeepers in the country and the humanitarian situation is Noah Gotchalk, who is the Senior Humanitarian Policy Advisor at Oxfam. He does a great job of offering some broader context to understand how South Sudan has so unraveled in the last five years. We kick off discussing the newest flare-up of violence in the city of Wow. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to subscribe on iTunes. Uh, Get the app, which is a free app for your mobile device that delivers the latest episodes right to your handheld. And as always, you can get in touch with me via the little contact button if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. And now here is Noah Gotschalk of Oxfam. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube.
1: There's been fighting that's been going on that's displaced a significant number of people. A lot of them are, are, are taking shelter around the UN mission in South Sudan's base. In Wow, the latest numbers I've heard are just short of about twenty thousand people who are displaced around that UN base. Uh, I think there's been a real failure by by uh, by the government, by the parties to the to the conflict, to really take into account the needs of civilians and and, and 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 stop this type of fighting from from going on. Again, the peace agreement was signed, you know, back in August of 2015, and to to see that there's still ongoing and new conflicts. Spreading in the country to new parts of the, co- of the country that weren't in conflict before is, is really incredibly worrying to see. Yeah, yeah so, wow, to see so WoW
0: is, is a pretty major city, right? And it had been largely spared fighting related to the civil war that started in 2013.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, WoW is a, is a, is a, is a major city. It's a bustling market, and economy uh, stop on the trade route of, of the flow of, of goods throughout the country. And and um, I, I don't think the people of WoW were expecting anything like this to happen, um, and it's, 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 it comes as a real shock to them. I think for long-term South Sudan watchers, it's probably not a shock to see how, how deeply affected this country can be by, by unresolved conflict and unresolved tensions in an absence of, um, of any real, real efforts to, to, to forge a lasting peace, to address the grievances of people, and to, to really address the, the impunity that's gone on in this country for so long.
0: Uh, and so you mentioned earlier that many of the displaced in WoW are uh, concentrating around UN camps. I mean, this has been something of of a pattern, I think, that we've seen throughout South Sudan, where people displaced by fighting sort of have flocked to uh, UN camps that have been able to provide them a modicum of protection, but at the same time are not necessarily ideal places for internally displaced people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that the UN has, has, for its part, has done – um, something really uh, really unique in the case of South Sudan in, in terms of uh, in the early days of the conflict opening up its doors to people who were fleeing. Um, there's now something like 158,000 people in South Sudan who are living in these so-called protection of civilian sites within UN bases. Um, that it's worth noting is only about 10% of all the displaced people within the country um, and an even smaller percentage of all the South Sudanese who've who've been displaced. Something like 2.5 million South Sudanese have been forced to flee their homes since the conflict started in 2013. Um, but the, these people have been able to receive uh, safety for the large part uh, within these UN bases. Um, and I think that's certainly to be commended. But we really want to see the UN doing a lot more. It has a Chapter 7 Protection of Civilians mandate, um, which requires it to, to protect civilians um, from imminent threat of violence. That means not just you know providing safe spaces for people to be, and in the case of Wow, they're not actually inside the base; they're they're around its peripheries. Um, but but to be doing short short you know uh, patrolling around around the areas where people are, as well as these longer range patrols to areas where people are living, and and, and really monitoring the situation. And that role is incredibly important, and it's 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 really about getting as many peacekeepers to as many parts of the country as possible to make sure that we're monitoring the situation and that they're able to respond and need protection from, from violence.
0: So we're speaking just a few days before the fifth anniversary of South Sudan's independence from uh, Sudan. And You know, I, I remember that, that occasion, uh, pretty well in, in 2011. I mean, we had from a freelancer, uh, for UN dispatch on the ground in Juba and she was taking photos. And I remember her sending me these photos of like jubilant crowds waving flags um just like a, a moment of almost ecstasy that after decades of of a f- struggle for liberation against Sudan finally South Sudan was to be a a new independent and free country and here we are 5 years later and South Sudan is arguably the poorest most conflict prone most um arduous and 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 uh, intense humanitarian crisis on the planet um what what happened? Like, what went wrong? How how could you boil down how um, this once very hopeful moment has become mired in such misery right now?
1: Well, one thing I can say is that the South Sudanese that we speak with and the South Sudanese that we, as Oxfam, work with, are still hopeful. They still want to see a better future for themselves, for their children. Um, they 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 want to see the peace that they were promised after so many not just years but decades of fighting. They want to see that peace realized. Um, and despite everything they've been through, I think there is still a great deal of hope in, in in South Sudan. The thing is, a little bit of that hope gets chipped away every single day that this conflict continues. Every single day that people don't have access to services, to water, to food, um, that's that's the urgent call to the international community. Um, we've seen uh, really a plague of of uh, of abuse of of civilians continue for for many years. Um, there's been there's been corruption. There's been really a, a disrespect for for the sanctity of, of people's lives and property uh, in the country, um, and we now have the situation where, according to a recent report by uh, the Sud Institute in in South Sudan, a majority of of South Sudanese who are working are actually poorer today than they were ten years ago. And I think that needs to be an incredibly serious wake up call to the international community that this project that we have invested in so heavily, this country that we've We've, you know, worked to support for so many years here in the U.S. It's received really amazingly bipartisan support for for decades now um, that 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 country is really uh, on the brink of of a real catastrophe if it's not already in the midst of one already. Um, And, you know, inflation rates are reaching 300 percent as of as of as of June of this year. Um, There's been a huge rate, you know, a huge number of schools that have been constructed, in the country over the years since since the peace agreement was signed uh, between Sudan and, and, and the South Sudanese in, in 2005. Now one in three of those schools have been, has been destroyed in the conflict that started in 2013. Um, there's a huge amount of work that we need to be doing to get this country back on the right track. I think if we as the international community work in a, in a meaningful way with civil society and put meaningful pressure on the parties to the conflict to put an end to this violence and abuse. We are going to see positive things come out of South Sudan. There is still hope. There is incredible resilience and strength among the people of South Sudan. I would. Yeah, um,
0: I, I mean, even even with all the strength and all the resilience of of the people of South Sudan, it seems that there are still some structural barriers. Even if if uh, the 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 sides uh, formally enacted the peace agreement tomorrow. Um, there are still huge economic challenges to the development of of the country, and the report you cited identifies some of those. And, and one of those is is the status of oil production, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, um, even uh, you know that that you know oil is obviously near historic lows right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and South Sudan has historically, over the last you know five years, depended. On what like ninety eight percent of its its revenue comes from oil production, right? Um, what's the current status of of oil production in in South Sudan and its ability to um, at least fill the coffers of, of of government budgets?
1: Well, one of the things that's that's been really important from for years now, and something that many NGOs, many in civil society have been saying, is that South Sudan, South Sudan, even when oil prices were high. Needed to diversify its economy away from oil as its sort of sole income earner, um, and that that is even more so true today uh, when we look at the, the the historically low prices of oil that, that you talk about. Um, you know, I've I've seen reports that say it, it can cost more money to produce oil than 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 they're actually getting from from selling it.
0: Right, because um, they also have to pay fees to Sudan to ship it through Sudan to to the port,
1: and not to. Me- the, the cost of 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 oil exploration, you know, and the fact that the way that the a lot of the the money that has come into to to government coffers has been in the sales of oil futures. So if they're if they were set at the different prices and the prices have have gone down, you then see a gap in in in, in what people are actually able to 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 spend and then reinvest in, into the country itself. Um, so what what Tanzania really desperately needs is is a really serious structural. Um, economic reform which diversifies the economy which takes advantage of the incredible fertility of the land um, and you know one challenge is certainly going to be um, the really poor state of roads and and transportation infrastructure in the country something like two percent of the roads in the country are paved um, you know barely any 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 of the roads are, are paved in, in a country the size of france um, but there's also a huge opportunity in the, in the river network that the country has, which has not been exploited so far, to move goods and services around the country, to move people around the country as we sort of build, um, build a road infrastructure and a road network as well. There's so many opportunities. There's also presence of minerals in South Sudan. So the economy needs to be diversified. And in the meantime, what needs to happen is there needs to be transparency and accountability in terms of how the, the money that, that is coming from oil is actually coming into the government coffers and how it's actually being spent, how it's going out to, to benefit, hopefully, the people of the country.
0: Because m- most government expenditure right now is is from the military purposes, because they're you know if not in the midst of a civil war, uh, recently recovering from a, a civil war that continues to flare up as as evidenced by the situation in Wow.
1: That's right. In 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 the last few years since the start of the conflict, about forty percent of the national budget has actually been. Uh, devoted to the military, um, and the amount that 's actually gone to education is about five percent um, and The general recommendation I should mention on on funding for education should be about twenty percent of the budget so it 's it 's really far below what it what it needs to be um, and and so I think seeing a really fundamental reform of that process is incredibly incredibly important and incredibly urgent there 's been calls for a reform of the security sector for a very long time, even before this conflict started. Um, an ability to to right size people could say the size of the of the army in South sudan um, you know i think it 's worth noting that you have in in a country like South Sudan a huge number of of young men um, of what people often call fighting age and many of whom are actually engaged in fighting that that actually can translate into a capacity into a strength. Those same young men who are of fighting age are also of construction age, they're of working age, they're of road building age, they're of school building age. It, you know, If people have a, a, a meaningful opportunity to get out of, of the cycle of fighting and the cycle of, uh, of violence that has plagued the country for so long, there's a lot that they can do to actually build the country. And in, in the conversations that I've had with South Sudanese, particularly young men on, on my various visits to, to the country, a lot of them have actually said that to me very directly. That they don't want to fight anymore. They don't want to be involved. They don't want to carry a gun. They don't want to be involved in, in warfare anymore. They want to have jobs. They want to be building their country, their families. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we as the international community need to support those people in, in, in fulfilling that dream and doing what they need to do to actually build their country.
0: Yeah, no, I know, like, the, the economist Paul Collier, um, like, like you just said, points out that, um, construction jobs are, are often very good outlets for recently demobilized young hmm. male soldiers. Um, but, uh, I suppose that requires first the, the cessation of, of hostilities and, and the end of conflict. But Absolutely. it seems that, um, the, the conflict, even though there is a peace deal on paper, uh, hasn't quite been implemented, right?
1: Absolutely. I think there's 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 a sense I think that a lot of people have in the country that the international community, the US in particular, you know, convened the parties, got them to, to hammer out this deal, and then kinda just, you know, walked away. I, I, I will tell you that, that the you know the US the international community remains engaged in lots of ways. You know, I think if you talk to people in the administration, they would they would point to the amount of work that they've done to try to keep the parties on track, but it doesn't change the perception that many South Sudanese have that the international community has really abandoned them, that their focus was on getting the peace deal and not actually on implementation. I think there's a real challenge there because the peace deal contains lots of really important pieces um, that would really strengthen the country, that would move the country forward. But if they're not implemented, if they just remain on paper, they're pretty useless. Um, And that includes things like the Commission for Truth, Reconciliation and Healing, the hybrid court, a reconstruction fund. Um, all those things that that can be put into place and need to be put into place to really move the country forward. And unfortunately, that's going to require um, a lot more pressure from the international community, particularly from regional countries, I might add, than what we've seen so far to to, to date.
0: And I guess it doesn't seem out of the realm of plausibility that the peace agreement that is on paper just, you know, totally unravels, um, you know, particularly in light of what we're seeing in in WOW and and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the worst case scenario, probably. And I think um, that's why the peace deal may not be perfect there's been a lot of criticism that it you know it, it sort of amounts to an accommodation of elites and doesn't really get to the needs of the people the fact is it is a deal that we have and we've got to be focusing on implementing it and I think there's so much that it actually has in it um, that, that that's positive that if, it, that if implemented it could actually start bringing a change to people another thing that's really important to, to note is um, the local peace efforts that are happening outside of the framework of the peace agreement that are happening between communities and areas across the country, those need to be integrated into the the broader understanding of peace in South Sudan, Uh, you know, bringing the role of civil society of individual South Sudanese into that sort of high level process is, is one way to really make sure that this process works and it sticks, and it will hopefully address some of the challenges, some of the lessons we've learned from the comprehensive peace agreement that was signed in 2005, which really didn't have the voice of civil society represented, which didn't really address any of those longstanding grievances uh, that people have felt. I think we can have the opportunity now to learn to learn from those mistakes and, and really do something better this time around.
0: Uh, I wanted to finally turn to the humanitarian situation in uh, South Sudan, which your organization, Oxfam, I know runs a number of, of relief operations uh, and relief efforts in South Sudan. Um, one sort of thing that I think marks the challenge of of delivering relief in South Sudan is just the sheer cost of it. I mean, you referred earlier to unpaved roads and, and inaccessibility of areas. Um, but I know from talking to UN people and, and other relief uh, agencies that South Sudan is just one of the hardest, most expensive operations uh, they have. Can you describe, I, I think, some of the challenges, uh, logistical challenges of simply getting relief to people who need it?
1: Yeah. Well, so we're, we're, you know, right now, for example, we're in the midst of the rainy season um, and the rainy season means that people who've had the opportunity to plant crops can hopefully see those crops grow in the, in the coming months um, to be able to, to have some food to eat. Um, but it also means that people who weren't able to, to, to plant crops who don't have food with them um, have almost no ability to reach in many cases assistance or markets if they have the money to buy food off, off, off of local markets um, you know, it, it turns. The rains come heavily, and they and they turn a lot of the the unpaved roads in the country to to basically to swamps. Um, that's why it's so important for us to be able to use all the different assets at at our disposal to use air assets, which are incredibly expensive, but are a really vital way of reaching people who won't be reached otherwise. But especially to be able to use the rivers that 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 really fill the country um, to be able to deliver food in that way. But I guess one of the one of the key problems in South Sudan is not only do you have such a, sh- a large sheer number of people who, who need assistance. And if you look at some of the statistics, they're absolutely daunting, you know, one in four, uh, children under the age of five are malnourished. Um, 686,000 of those are acutely malnourished. Um, I think a higher level, as we've seen in, in the latest reports from, from the UN, a higher level of people, um, severely food insecure than at any other time, um, since, since they've been recording, um, you know the the amount of money that actually goes into delivering of assistance cuts into the amount of money the amount of aid you're actually delivering, because um,
0: like but, costs are so high to deliver via airplanes that
1: it means you no know, there's
0: less like food to actually purchase
1: or, or deliver or couch absolutely <laughs> um the respond i mean to be we're trying to reach uh this year six point one million South Sudanese that's over half the half the country in need of a humanitarian assistance, and to do that it's going to cost about one point two one point two nine billion almost one point three billion dollars. Um, and right now, that's only about thirty nine percent funded. Um, so there's a huge gap in 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 receiving the assistance, and it seems like a lot of donors are waiting for things to get worse before they release those funding uh, release release those funds. And that's that's a real mistake. We can't wait until things get worse. We've got to be preempting, preventing things from getting worse now with the right kinds of funding, funding that's going to build on people's capacities, building on the strength and resilience I mentioned. Um,
0: and And in terms of things getting worse i I did see a a recent u n report warning of extremely high levels of food insecurity uh warning even uh that that you know that child you know death rates and and famine may be in 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 the future for South Sudan if things don't change
1: yeah i mean i think the 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 trend lines look incredibly worrying the, the situation the economic crisis the inflation the continuation of fighting all those things point to really protracted food insecurity and, and, and increasingly bad food insecurity. Um, there's parts of the country that we as, as humanitarians aren't even able to reach to assess how bad the food insecurity is. So we don't even know the full picture of how bad things are. And if we can't get there to assess we're you know, it's, it's a pretty safe assumption that food isn't getting to those areas either that markets are, you know, aren't, aren't functioning in those areas either. So I think it's, it's, it's 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 what you don't know that's probably even worrying than, than what we do know.
0: And finally, what else can the international community do to improve the situation in South Sudan right now?
1: The key thing that needs to be done is we we do have this peace agreement now and it needs to be implemented. We can't you know reach a year since it was signed and and not see any 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 real implementation on the ground. People have their hopes pinned on on it. Um, and I think there's a lot that 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 needs to be done by the international community. To really strengthen the hands of the people who are who, who are seeking peace in the country. The US, it's, it's worth noting, is a signatory to that peace agreement with a number of other members of the international community um, and, and the parties to parties the conflict themselves. So we've got a real stake in this, in this situation. Um, that means working to set up the institutions that, that, are, that are described in the in the peace agreement, things like the Commission on Truth, Reconciliation, Healing, the Hybrid Court, and the Reconstruction Fund.